Welcome back to the Journal Feed. My name is Nick Zelt, and this is the place to be spoon-fed the latest and greatest of emergency medicine. We seek to provide spoon-feeds of information from recent journal articles so that you can keep up with the ever-changing landscape of acute care medicine. You work hard reading or listening to the Journal Feed, and now you can reward yourself and get what you're due for all your hard work. You can now get CME credits for the time that you spend educating yourself through the journal feed. We've teamed up with Hippo Education to provide these CME credits for you. And if you'd like to learn more, you can head over to the website at journalfeed.org and we'll have all the information you need there. Now onto this week's summaries, which were brought to you by our authors, the excellent Aaron Lacey, Vivian Lay, and Clay Smith. The first article for this week was titled, Locally Informed Simulation to Predict Hospital Capacity Needs During the COVID-19 Pandemic, out of the Annals of Internal Medicine. One of the scariest things about COVID-19 has been not knowing what's going to come next. When will the initial surge be? When will the second or third surges possibly come? Overall, large population predictions, like those provided by the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluations model, are really cool, but they don't necessarily help you specifically. What about your local hospital? What about something that's closer to home? The University of Pennsylvania developed the CHIME COVID-19 Hospital Impact Model. This is really put in place to help predict when hospital capacity would likely be exceeded how bad the surge would be, and also the need for ICU beds and ventilators. Our author Clay gave it a try for his hospital, and he's hoping that he's hopefully made some kind of mistake um, because it looks like they're overshooting the risk. If you'd like to give it a try yourself, hop over onto the blog or just type in Chime COVID-19 Hospital Impact Model into Google, and you can give it a go for yourself. You'll need to know some of your local population details, though. The second article for this week was titled In-Hospital Cardiac Arrest Outcomes Among Patients with COVID-19 Pneumonia in Wuhan, China, out of the journal Resuscitation. Everyone's worst nightmare at the moment is a COVID patient going into arrest. CPR on a COVID patient risks aerosolization of a lot of virus particles. I say that being conservative, because in truth, CPR guarantees the aerosolization of virus particles. This is a risk to the healthcare team, one that we of course have to acknowledge. But it's hard to do a risk assessment without knowing the potential benefits. What's the other side of the coin? Which is why we need to know what the outcomes look like for an arresting COVID patient. In this study out of Wuhan, China, over a 40-day period, 136 patients hospitalized for COVID pneumonia arrested. And I won't surprise you in reporting that the most common cause for patient arrest in this population was respiratory at 83% of the patients. Uh, from this study, 90% of the patients had asystole, 4.4% had pulseless electrical activity, and 5.9% had a shockable rhythm. From there, only 13% were able to achieve return of spontaneous circulation, and only 3% survived to 30 days. More importantly, though, is that only one person in the 136 people had neurologically intact survival at 30 days. That's less than 1%. And all of these patients received resuscitation efforts that were consistent with guidelines. So, in a spoonful, the outcome for hospitalized patients with COVID-19 who were arrested was pretty dismal in this case series. 
And so we return to the question at hand, does the risk for the healthcare team outweigh the benefit to the patient? Our author Clay thinks it might not. How about you? Next, we move on to the third article, which was titled, Does the Removal of Textbook Reading from Emergency Medicine Residency Education Negatively Affect In-Service Scores? Out of the Western Journal for Emergency Medicine. As a student myself, who clearly dabbles in the field of evidence-based medical education, I quite like this study, actually. Medicine requires some degree of forever studying, though I've always sort of assumed that it drops off a little bit after residency. I'm hoping. But for residents and for everybody, it's hard to get into a good study routine when you already have a full day of clinical activities and beyond, for that matter. We're always searching for the most efficient ways to distill information and reinforce it. The journal feed, of course, is one way to help. But what about that core knowledge? This study took one residency cohort and examined if question-based studying, in this case, reading evidence-based medicine articles and then doing their corresponding rush review questions, was non-inferior to the more classical way of studying, which would be textbook reading, in this case, Tintinale's. There are a few limitations from the study which bear mentioning. First off, it was just one residency, so the sample size was small. Next is about the comparisons. They compared each resident's scores in year one, before the curriculum change, to their scores in year two. Now, this might not necessarily be ideal. It might have been more meaningful for them to compare national percentage rankings instead of raw scores, which might have given us a more accurate picture of their performance. However, they did compare the study cohort scores with the previous year's scores, and that could likely be a decent comparison. Either way, both comparisons showed non-inferiority of question-based learning to textbook-based learning. On top of it, there was increase in resident satisfaction with the new curriculum, and residents even used it more often. As a bit of anecdotal support from our author, who can give a program director perspective, Nicole agrees with these findings. Question-based learners tend to do well, make good use of their time, and likely have greater repetition in their study than you would get out of a textbook. It also gives you more freedom to study around recent cases that you've seen that might not otherwise have entered into your study schedule. So, in a spoonful, using evidence-based medicine articles with question-based studying was compared with the classic studying method of textbook reading, and residents were found to prefer the question-based approach while their scores remained non-inferior to the scores of the traditional learners. Next, onto the fourth article, titled Development and Validation of a Penicillin Allergy Clinical Decision Rule out of JAMA Internal Medicine. Coming as no surprise to you, many patients self-report penicillin allergies, but studies show that most of these are not true allergies. Unfortunately, both sides of the coin have problems. Ignoring a penicillin allergy outright because the numbers are in your favor could risk a bad reaction. Meanwhile, needlessly avoiding common first-line antibiotics is also damaging to your patient. This study derives and validates a point-of-care clinical decision rule to risk-stratify patients claiming to have penicillin allergies to help you to identify those who may safely use this family of drugs without the need for confirmatory allergy testing, which can be both resource and labor intensive. To develop the tool, 622 patients reporting penicillin allergies were prospectively put through allergy testing. The clinical variables associated with positive allergy testing were then distilled into the mnemonic PEN-FAST. 
So this rule is for patients reporting a penicillin allergy. That's the pen part. As for the fast part, you can assign points for patients who meet clinical variables. So five years or less since the reaction, worth two points. Anaphylaxis or angioedema or severe cutaneous adverse reaction, also worth two points. And then treatment required for the reaction, worth one point. And depending on how many points that your patient has, you can assign for your patient a risk. Using this tool for patients with low risk, that is a score less than three, the negative predictive value was 96.3%. External validation done for this tool saw that it remained clinically relevant in a retrospective cohort of 945 patients from two centers in Australia and one in Nashville, Tennessee. All right, in a spoonful, using the PENFAST rule, patients with a low risk for true penicillin allergies can be identified without the need for formal allergy testing. And then it may be appropriate to use these antibiotics in these patients, perhaps with an observed oral challenge in the primary care setting, though. On to the last article for this week, titled 10 Best Practices for Improving Emergency Medicine Provider-Nurse Communication, out of the Journal for Emergency Medicine. Communication in the emergency department is vital for safe and effective care, but communication is the time-old human struggle and can be very difficult to implement. This paper put together focus groups and then did a concept mapping analysis among emergency physicians and nurses to identify informational needs, communication strategies, and barriers as well. They distilled all of that down into these 10 commandments of doctor-nurse communication, which we'll go through quickly one by one. One, communicate diagnostic assessment, plan of care, and disposition plan to other team members as early as possible, and update the team on any changes to the plan. Two. Communicate pending tasks in the patient's care as well as information regarding changes or holdups to tasks or orders. Three, communicate details regarding proactive diagnostic testing and therapeutic interventions. So things like placing IVs or drawing blood works in a patient with abdominal pain or obtaining a urine HCG in a patient of childbearing age. Four, don't assume that everyone has a shared understanding. Recognize that you might have unique access to information and make sure that it is shared in a timely manner. Five, notify providers of any critical or unexpected changes in vital signs or patient status. Did the patient develop a new tachycardia, fever, hypotension? Everybody needs to know. Six, do not assume electronic records substitute for verbal communication. Seven, use asynchronous communication for low-priority items to aid in prioritization like leaving a note for a physician for non-urgent orders. Eight, adapt communication strategies based on the team member's experience and existing relationships. For example, a new nurse may need extra help and time. Nine, adapt communication strategies to the physical layout of your emergency department, especially in those facilities where nurses and physicians may have workstations that are out of sight from one another, and it may not be obvious which staff members are on different care teams. 10. Use strategies that exploit provider experience regardless of where that person falls in the hierarchy. For example, you might find that a fresh new resident will know very little compared to the seasoned charge nurse. So, in a spoonful, good communication between physicians and nurses is paramount and requires conscious effort to perfect. Hopefully, some of these points were helpful for you. So, what did we learn today? We learned that there's a neat COVID surge predictor out there, and if you want to give it a try with your numbers, have a go. Next, the outlook for recovering from arrest for a COVID patient isn't very good. 
These are numbers that you should be considering before putting yourself and others at risk when considering resuscitating COVID patients. After that, if you're looking for a new way to study, if you're sick of or never liked reading from a textbook, then this study supports switching to a question-based approach without sacrificing your grades. Then we learned about a quick mnemonic, PENFAST, that can be used to identify patients at low risk for true penicillin allergies. Finally, there is no bigger impediment to patient care than poor communication, especially between members of the healthcare team. You need strategies to improve information sharing, streamline plans of care, acknowledge patient status changes, and be aware of team dynamics. And that's it for this week. Links to all the articles summarized can be found at journalfeed.org, where if you haven't already, you can subscribe to our newsletter and get daily spoon feeds through your email. And you can also visit our website if you'd like to take advantage of our CME credits. Thanks for joining us to keep up with the latest research, one spoonful at a time.